Hi, good afternoon. Uh, this is Greg Lois. Uh, and if you're with me today, it's to learn a little bit about the common defenses in New York. We're going to answer the question, should I accept or deny this case? Uh, it's one of the most common questions I get. Um, my role here at the firm, uh, so a little bit about us, Lois Law Firm, we are 26 attorneys defending workers' compensation claims in New York and New Jersey. My role at the firm here, uh, I do a lot of intake work from clients and a lot of general questions. I field a lot of general questions. And one of the most common general questions I get, if not the most common is, hey, Greg, here's a random set of facts. Should I accept or deny this case? Well, today uh, we're going to talk about some of the less common and more common uh, denial fact scenarios. We're going to talk about whether or not those cases should be denied or controverted. And then we're going to sort of give some advice about uh, whether those denials are ultimately sustained or are ultimately successful. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about denials in general, why they're important. I'm going to talk about specific defenses, including the defense that there was no accident, defense of like intoxication, recreational defenses. And this is completely and totally 100% live. So I'm hoping that everyone out there asks me tons and tons of questions. I just sent a chat to the people here in the webinar saying, hey, reminder, ask questions, it makes it so much more fun, uh, particularly for me. Now, if I don't get to your question, I usually answer all the questions in the end. Uh, I will send you an email or a phone call to follow up with any questions that I don't get to during the presentation. So please feel free to ask away. I will not say your name when I answer your question. I'll just say your first name and I'll say, you know, John, ask the following question and then I'll just go right through it. Okay, uh, so let's talk about denials in general. First of all, uh, New York, if there is an accident that occurs during the workday involving one of our employees and we do nothing, it will be con uh, presumed compensable. The uh, employees in the state of New York are afforded basic presumptions of compensability under Section 21 of the Workers' Compensation Law. These presumptions indicate uh, or allow the court to take the assumption that if it happened at work, it happened because of work. Uh, and those presumptions are often relied upon by the claimants in order to establish their case. So uh, what do we do when we want to dispute a matter? And there's a lot of reasons, right? Uh, a basic reason is, hey, the accident never occurred. Or there's a fact defense. There's some information that we have that we want to present to the court and say, wait a second, this is not compensable. Uh, how do we do that? So New York uh, requires the filing of a first report of injury within 25 days after the case has been indexed. Now, I just said a mouthful there. The first report of injury uh, is just an electronic filing form. Uh, we'll be filing the denial type dash 04. And we've got to put in all of our legal grounds. And these could be uh, legal defenses, statutory defenses, uh, all the reasons that we're disputing or denying the compensability of this matter. This needs to be filed within 25 days after the case is indexed. What does indexing mean? It just means that the board has assigned the matter a docket number and issued an indexing, uh, a form called the EC-84. When you see that, the clock is running. Now, my opinion is, uh, and this is my opinion, this is my bias, if we can dispute or deny an aspect of the case, we absolutely should. Denials or defenses not raised are waived. And this is a gotcha jurisdiction. If you don't raise a jurisdictional defense within 25 days of the case being indexed, bad news. Uh, you have waived that, case, that, uh, that uh, defense forever, including defenses like not my jurisdiction, the accident didn't even happen in New York State, uh, really big, broad defenses like that. So that's a big challenge. Now, I cannot file the Freud-04, the first report of injury 04, that's the denial type, on behalf of my clients. 
only an insurance carrier or employer can file that form. So what happens is when the adjuster or risk professional has a case that they want to deny, uh, they will call me up and we'll go through the facts of the case and I'll give my advice as to whether it can be denied or not. Often my partner, John Marzola, does a lot of this intaking as well. We will send the adjuster an email with all of the denial codes the same day so that they can complete the uh, electronic filing. And then we, are, in our office, will go ahead and file all of the supporting documentation to perfect that denial. All right. First defense, pretty basic defense, lack of notice, operates pretty similarly to the way it does in other states. The claimant has 30 days to provide notice to the employer that an injury occurred and uh, at work. Uh, now, the tricky thing about this is uh, the statute says it has to be in writing, but in my experience, it rarely is. It's often just a verbal notice, and verbal notice has been upheld as okay uh, as long as it's to a supervisor or manager. Uh, it, uh, notice to a co-employee uh, is not notice under the statute. So, uh, you know, simply telling your colleague, oh, I got hurt yesterday or two weeks ago, is does not act as notice to the employer. And that's something to be mindful of. Now, the employer can be deemed to have what's called constructive notice uh, uh, because they uh, should have known or realized that the employee was injured at work. Look, if you operate a retail establishment and one of your employees is wheeled out in an ambulance on a stretcher or a helicopter comes to your construction site to medevac, uh, one of your injured workers, you're going to be deemed to have constructive notice of that fall. We raise notice as a defense uh, primarily in the uh, instance where the case, the claim, the injury, the alleged accident is revealed long after the claimant's left our employment. You know, the classic, I terminate somebody for good cause and six months later they file a worker's comp claim against me alleging that they were injured sometime prior. We'll raise notice as a defense to that and generally prevail in those. The claimant will almost always come to court and say, well, I did give notice uh, to so-and-so, you know, Joe, my colleague, um, and the court will have to weigh that. In general, the notice defense will not be successful where the employer cannot show prejudice. And so we're always arguing that there is prejudice to the employer. I didn't have the opportunity to go and investigate and do a, a good investigation of that loss because they waited so long before providing me notice. So that's notice, very powerful defense. Statute of limitations, another great defense in New York, New York. The statute of limitations is two years by uh, dint of statute. Uh, that is sometimes a little bit confusing in New York because uh, the uh, statute of limitations in civil actions, so for a general liability case, would be three years. Uh, but in New York for a workers' compensation claim, it is two years. So the claimant has two years from when they knew or should have known that they had a loss to bring that. Now that also applies to the occupational exposure, repetitive injury, or environmental disease case. Interestingly, again, it's two years from when they knew or should have known. So in the occupational exposure claim, repetitive use claim, what you really want to do to defend those cases and raise that statute of limitations defense and then be uh, successful on it is find some time in the medical records, and this could be their primary health care records with their primary physician, where they complained about this condition years before they told us about it. Uh, there are reported decisions where employees who had told their personal physicians that they were exposed to, for example, asbestos at work or lead paint or uh, other environmental contaminants uh, years in the past. And yeah, I think I'm getting exposed to this at work and then don't bring their workers' compensation claims for 10 years. The statute is deemed to have run from when they first told their uh, doctor about it. So in those types of cases where you want to establish a statute of limitations defense, it's going to be really powerful to get those prior medicals. All right, how about just no accident as a defense? That is a good, valid, viable defense in New York. Uh, an accident is required, 
right? Uh, and how do we refute the fact that an accident occurred or didn't occur? Answer, uh, I love it when my employers tell me, Greg, we have uh, surveillance footage of the workplace, we've got video, this never happened. Um, the claimant has the uh, duty to show that there was sort of some sort of accident which could have led to these alleged injuries. Uh, now, in the situation where the claimant is alleging that they're exposed to some sort of environmental hazard, well, uh, it is up to them to show that this environmental hazard is somehow peculiar to their workplace. So claims where the claimant alleges they have developed respiratory disorders, uh, neuropsychiatric disorders, because they have been exposed to cold or extremes of heat, weather, that has not been found uh, to be compensable in New York because that's not really peculiar to any one specific employment. Uh, so we're really looking for a very close tie-in between the alleged uh, irritant or contaminant and the underlying alleged condition. Um, now, I want to remind everyone at this point, we're about uh, four or five slides into this, this is a live presentation. I do intend on answering questions, so I'm hoping that we start to get some questions pop in. I can um, see on my dashboard over here when questions are coming in, and I love questions, so it uh, looks like we're starting to get some. Uh, oh, you know what? These are people in my office uh, messing around with me as usual. All right, uh, what did I do? I moved it over. Okay, here we go. Nope, come back this way. Nope. All right, hold on a second. You got, you guys, you got me. All right, I'll close that window. Did it go away? No, um, why would it? That would be simple. All right, it did, finally. All right, okay. All right, and again, this is totally live. As you can see, uh, please continue to have your questions come in. All right, personal idiopathic injuries defense. Uh, look, this is one of those ones where uh, if you've been sitting in my seat for as long as I've been sitting in it, and I've been doing this for 18 years, uh, I have got clients who every time someone gets hurt, they go, eh, that's idiopathic, that's all pre-existing, right? So let's talk about that defense. First of all, personal conditions are not uh, compensable. Um, and mere flaring up of a personal condition in the workplace, also not compensable. So I'm thinking here of people with really clear, really obvious non-work-related conditions. You're diabetic, you have congestive heart failure, uh, you have uh, other cardiac conditions that just flare up at work. There was no precipitating event, there was no aggravating event, there was nothing extraordinary about your workday that day, but you, know, you just forgot to take your diabetes medication that morning uh, and it caused you to faint, let's say, in the afternoon. Not compensable. Uh, that is not a case that should be uh, brought under workers' compensation. However, in these cases, oftentimes the person will, as they faint, strike their head on their desk or strike their head on a piece of equipment on the way down, uh, which the head injuries in that component of the case would be compensable. This becomes really difficult when they're going to the emergency room and you're saying, hey, treat them for the sequelae of the head injury, but we're, you know, ignore the underlying health condition. That should go through private health insurance. That's not us. So that's a challenge, but that's how that should be handled. Um, idiopathics are not compensable, so you're just walking along and my knee gave out on me case, that's one that should be disputed. The claimant will have to come to court and prove that they were walking on some uneven, extraordinary surface that caused their knee to give out. And that's the most common one I hear, things like, I'm just walking along and my knee popped. What? All right, well, there's no injury, there's no accident. That There was nothing there in the workplace that precipitated that, so that's how we're gonna defend those. Uh, it is still up to us, though, to rebut the Section 21 presumptions that because it arose during the course of employment, it is therefore compensable. Uh, oftentimes, we will have to present medical testimony in order to defend these cases, essentially establishing what was the pre-existing condition and why is it not related. All right, 
Uh, how about intoxication as a defense? Intoxication is an incredibly strong defense, but we have to prove that the intoxication was the sole cause of the accident. So built into the statute uh, is this defense, which says that the claimant's condition solely caused by their intoxication, it is not compensable. Guess what? In practice, that means that this defense essentially is useless because I need to show that the claimant's own contributory negligence and anything else has really uh, nothing to do with the case. It's solely intoxication. Let's give some good examples. The clearest examples are my driver cases. I have cases involving commercial truck drivers who come to work incredibly intoxicated, get in their truck, get in, a, in an accident. Uh, the driver only has to say to the judge, judge, I admit it. My blood alcohol content was 4.0. I was four times the legal limit. Uh, but judge, I was also really tired because I was working overtime that prior week and I hadn't gotten as much sleep. So the sleep, uh, lack of sleep from overworking the prior week plus my intoxication caused the accident. Guess what? That's enough for them to defeat the intoxication defense. Uh, I'll give an example now of when the intoxication defense is successful. An example is I have a case or a had case in which the claimant was a heroin addict and would leave the workplace, he worked in a warehouse, and go out into his car in the parking lot and shoot up heroin. Uh, this was, uh, it did occur during the workday, right? Uh, he wasn't punched in or punched out, but clearly nobody's instructing him to go do heroin during the day. Uh, this gentleman uh, was found dead in his car because he overdosed. Uh, we were successful with the intoxication defense in that case because we could prove there was absolutely nothing related to this employment that caused him to die. Our adversaries in that case did bring up a Good Samaritan uh, rule that you should have to render aid to someone if you find them. And so their argument was essentially the employer, when they found him, should have found him sooner, uh, which is, is of, of course, crazy. But they're, against, again, trying to impute some sort of negligence to the employer. It doesn't matter. In that case, we were able to show there was no weight work relationship. The person's doing something clearly illegal and illicit in his car, uh, and that was found to be not compensable. But that's a pretty uh, hard burden to prove that the sole cause of the injury or death is the intoxication with absolutely no contribution from the workplace. All right, let's talk about consequential injuries, because my belief is that essentially these should be denied almost as a matter of course. Uh, the classic case in New York is where the claimant says, oh, I was injured at work, I injured my left hand, but then I was using my right hand so much more, uh, and now that's uh, got a condition or a disability. Uh, it's, these are infuriating, and New York loves these things. The doctors love them. Uh, the board has never been uh, strict about uh, allowing us to prevail on sustaining a denial of a consequential body part, and so this is kind of a cottage industry. However, they should be denied, even if it's just to set yourself up for a section 32 on that particular body part. Uh, and we should always be denying the add-in consequential injuries. So things like I have a psychiatric disability now. I feel sad about my, you know, I got the blues. I'm depressed uh, because I can't go to work because I have this work injury that, by the way, I'm stretching out forever. Uh, you know, those should be absolutely denied and challenged. Um, that's our position in general. Uh, it is very, uh, they are defensible as well. So consequential claims, uh, when they throw in that claim for neuropsychiatric or they throw in the contralateral body part and claim that that's now part of the case, we should really be fighting on those. All right, uh, let's talk about intentionals. Uh, so this uh, actually, uh, the defense of intentionality, it, it, to me, encompasses a couple things. and encompasses intentional self-harms, intentional disobedience, and it encompasses uh, the uh, inter-colleague 
dispute that results in an assault or horseplay. Uh, so let's talk about them uh, in, in a couple different ways. First, uh, intentional self-harm is defined. Uh, self-harm is very troublesome to prove. So I have employers who will come to me and they'll say, Greg, we told everybody that this section of the work site was under construction. Nobody should go into that section of the worksite because it's under construction. We even put up these signs that said danger. You know, this worksite's under construction. And these guys were fooling around or they went over there to go have their lunch and be left alone and they fell into a hole and got injured. Didn't they intentionally self-harm themselves, Greg, by ignoring our work rules? Uh, nope, that's generally not going to prevail. Ignoring safety advice from the employer is generally not going to be a bar. We can argue that they intentionally exposed themselves to risk uh, that was outside of the employment by doing that, but generally speaking, we are going to be unsuccessful. Similarly, uh, uh, we've raised as an intentional uh, the idea that they, the employee themselves was removing machine guarding. They were disabling the lockout tagout on devices. They were taking off machine safety devices so they could work quicker or more efficiently. It was simpler to clean up at the end of the day, that type of thing. Uh, Greg, it was simpler for them to clean up the machine while it was running type of injuries and then wants to argue that, hey, they self-harmed themselves. In general, if the employer knows that these uh, guards are being removed uh, or in any way condones or allows it, it's going to be found compensable. Even in cases where the employer doesn't know that they're removing guards, that will, again, not be found to be an intentional harm, self-harm. Self-harm is hard to prove, and there are, of course, instances of this. I've had employees that were fired, then got into their, their company-owned vehicle and drove it directly into a brick wall in order to, in, 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 that, in that case, sustained two fractured femurs, which are very significant injuries, uh, and you know we raise self-harm as an argument. Of course, he comes into court and says, no, I didn't do that because I was angry. I did that because the car had bad brakes. You know, just crazy, crazy things that, that go on. In order to be truly successful with a self-harm, you, you either need to have behavior that is so egregious, goes so above and beyond what we would expect, uh, that the court will say, you know what, these, this should not be compensable. A good example of that is the famous Russian roulette case. Uh, two security guards who are issued pistols, I'm not sorry, not pistols, revolvers by their employer, got bored, you know, there's nothing to do, there's not a lot of guarding going on, uh, so they decide for fun they'll be playing Russian roulette with each other with loaded service pistols. So they put one uh, bullet in the revolver, they spin it, and they're playing the game. Uh, one of the uh, security uh, workers blows his head off, dies. His widow brings a worker's compensation claim, essentially saying, well, you gave him this dangerous instrumentality, this gun, and nobody told him not to play Russian roulette during the day, so this is compensable. That was found to be uh, acts so intentional that they uh, yielded a uh, controverted claim being sustained. So no benefits, no compensation, as we would hopefully expect. But in situations where the claimant does intend to commit self-harm, uh, we have cases where claimants have uh, uh, lit uh, very high scaffolding and jumped off. You know, they were depressed. Unless they literally leave a note, those are more likely than not going to be resolved in favor of the claimant or their dependents. Uh, the uh, part where we depart over this or change course a little bit is fights between employees. Generally speaking, where an employee instigates a physical altercation with another employee and assaults them, Injuries sustained by the employee who instigates that assault are not going to be compensable. The other employee who gets attacked, it might be compensable, uh, but only uh, where the uh, argument arose out of something with the workplace will the person who instigates the attack be compensated. So let me unpack that a little bit. We have two employees. They get into an argument over a card game or they're arguing about who's better, the Jets or the Giants, and they beat each other up. 
not compensable. If they are arguing about some incident of the employment, one employee tells the other, hey, you're working overtime today because I'm doing this, or I want you to do this bad job that nobody wants to do, you know, clean out the latrines, and they get into fisticuffs over that, uh, that would be found compensable. And the reason for that was they are arguing about something that's related, at least, to the employment. So in those cases, they can go either way. That's going to require a real fact-based investigation for us to figure out what's going on there. All right, recreational and break time injuries, in general, injuries that occur during recreational activities are not compensable. And we're gonna to have to really look at the facts of what is the employer sponsoring, what is the employer allowing? Uh, so what I mean by that is an employer who simply allows the employees to have a softball league uh, or just simply uh, pays maybe for the employees to participate in some kind of event, doesn't necessarily sponsor or require the event, it's more likely than not, not going to be found to be liable for any injuries arising out of that recreational event. Uh, so merely telling my employees, hey, guys, I really would love it if the lowest baseball team uh, won, you know, the Bergen County uh, Lawyers, uh, you know, soccer league or something like that. Right. Baseball players playing soccer doesn't make any sense, but ignore that. Uh, you know, if I, if I probably not going to transform that activity into the incident of the employment. But if I tell them, hey, guys, I'm really expecting you to win. I really expect everyone to volunteer. Hey, we're hosting this charity run. I expect you all to be there. Once you start making this required, then we are going to be responsible for any injuries that arise out of or in the course of. It doesn't really matter whether it's paid or unpaid activities, meaning does the employer pay the fee for entry fees, league registration fees, provide uniform, things like that. Now, breaks. Generally speaking, break time injury is not compensable. However, I, I, if your employees are like mine, they take their breaks a lot of the time on premises. They hang out in our training room, they watch TV, they have their lunch. Uh, more likely than not, an injury during a break on premises is going to be found to be compensable. Um, uh, injuries off premises in general will not be found compensable. Um, so the real big question about break time injuries, whether the person who is punched in or punched out, Frankly, it's not that big of a determining factor into whether the injury is ultimately going to be found compensable. We're really going to be looking at the location, the control, and whether there's a benefit to the employer in the claimant not walking off premises to take their break. All right, we made it. Uh, looks like most of you are still with me, and we're finally at the part where I'm going to start to answer some of your questions. So if you haven't asked your question yet, please do so now. Uh, I'm here to answer your questions. I'm going to do as many as I can. Uh, we'll do this for uh, about eight or nine minutes until 12:30. So I'm going to I'm going to talk really fast. All right. Addison says, "I love the graphics. Thanks. Uh, I think people in my office really enjoy coming to the webinars just to like mock me or say, hey, Greg, nice tie, or you know, whatever. Thanks. See you out there, Addison. Kathleen says, "Is there workers' comp coverage for certified nursing assistant?" or LPN, RN, leaving their home, going to the first client of the day, and are injured on the way there? Okay, great question, Kathy. So this is definitely something that we're gonna be talking about in our upcoming webinar on going and coming. The quick answer is, if the employee is going to an off-premises location, and it's the same stop every day, meaning they always start their day at, this, at a certain place, I call that their commute, their regular commute. If it's a different place every single day, and then it's going to be more difficult for us to argue that that, that initial travel is their regular commute. So for uh, route sales representatives, uh, for out, outside salespeople, uh, for traveling nurses, uh, you know, a whole range of employers, what we tell them is, look, that first travel from your house 
to your first stop, which is, by the way, on Mondays you always go to location one, on Tuesdays you go to location two, we're going to characterize that as your regular commute and use that as grounds to dispute the case. Uh, there, whether or not that's going to ultimately be sustained by the workers' compensation court is going to come down to the facts. How is that really truly their commute? Can we show that they were doing that over and over again? Okay. All right, Duran asked the question, what about environmental conditions not specific to the employment, but rather to a building with air quality or mold issues? Yeah, generally it's going to be compensable. So it, it is a, a general condition that everybody in that building is going to be exposed to, right? But it's not an exposure that everybody in the regular population would be exposed to. So uh, conditions like black mold in your building's air conditioning system, uh, if it led to a injury, I think that more likely than not, that would be found to be compensable. Uh, Mark asked the question, uh, what about police officers who get shot at but missed? Is this above and beyond their normal duties? Okay, so we've defended a lot of police officer uh, uh, shooting situations. And no, generally speaking, that is a regular incident of their employment. They can be expected to be, uh, you know, not shot at maybe per se, but certainly assaulted or being in the line of a fire or being in danger. And we have argued uh, that these are not extraordinary circumstances for that occupation, right? Now, for my occupation as an attorney, uh, even anything more than just a lot of yelling, I think, would be considered, well, very extraordinary here. Uh, certainly gunfire would be well beyond. But for that occupation, no, we've been successful in the past in arguing that, no, uh, that's that's your job. Uh, that's your job. Uh, often those stories can be quite compelling. Uh, we've had police officer cases where we defended on a neuropsychiatric basis uh, who were witness to horrific burnings and uh, injuries to minors and things like that and been successful on that. All right, John asked the question, a person collapses due to an idiopathic condition but only strikes the ground. Is the resultant injury from the ground strike considered compensable? Yeah, in general. So if the ground is our location, our premises, uh, the injury to the head, the cut, the laceration, the bruise, very likely going to be found compensable. Uh, and we would kind of look at that on a case-by-case -case basis. But in general, we would accept that part of the case. Uh, but certainly the underlying idiopathic condition would be denied. Uh, we have in the past made the argument, just so you know, that, hey, every place on earth has a floor. So striking the floor in my, um, in my premises, uh, there's nothing peculiar or unique to my premises having a floor. Uh, the courts are very split on that. And so whether you would be sustained by the appellate division is really up in the air. All right, Chris asked the question, for pre-existing conditions, uh, or the quote, my back just started to hurt, close quote. If you're in an environment where it's entirely possible that a back injury could occur, for example, the job description requires you to lift 50 pounds, how do you defend or substantiate it's a personal medical issue and that the back injury isn't caused by daily requirements? Right. So if, you know, I, I've had uh, doctors on the stand that have to address this exact issue. Right. And the exact issue is, hey, the jobs, this every job does require something. I'm a lawyer. Right. You look at my hands, soft, velvety little paws, not a callus on anything. I uh, don't do any heavy lifting. I got to walk around the office. I went to court this morning. I walked the mean streets of Patterson to get to Superior Court today. Uh, so there are hazards and every employment's going to have some hazards. Right. We can't eliminate the hazard of every employment. Um, so really, that's going to come down, down to some facts. Well, how much do they lift? How are they lifting? What are the lifting mechanics? Is it possible, right? Uh, degenerative conditions, just your back goes bad because you've been doing this for 30 years, are not compensable, right? The natural effects of aging, the natural effects of body deterioration, not compensable. Specific traumatic injuries are. 
I've also had doctors on the stand. Uh, one of my favorite orthopedic surgeons who I've uh, retained many, many times, and his wife happens to be uh, a classical concert pianist. So orthopedic surgeon married to a, a concert pianist. And he, uh, he said to me, Greg, look, if repetitive injuries really did cause carpal tunnel, if repetitive use of your extremities really did cause these conditions and degeneration, wouldn't every classical concert pianist who practices between eight and 10 hours a day, wouldn't they all have carpal tunnel and be debilitated by the time they're 22 years old, right? So we have to bring some level of common sense to this uh, uh, as to you know any physical labor does not necessarily lead to some condition. Those are defensible cases. Um, all right. Chris asked the question, an employee experienced a traumatic injury at work but personally isn't injured. For example, a coworker is killed due to an injury caused by a work accident. If the surviving employee develops PTSD, would you see psychiatric care being allowed? Yeah, so post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of seeing something extraordinary or peculiar, something completely unexpected, could be compensable. And that's the counterpoint, really, to the police officer case. Uh, for a police officer claiming that they've developed PTSD because they saw violence, is they've got a much higher burden to bear uh, because that's considered normal in that line of work. Uh, you know, a firefighter who, I, I've actually had this case, I had a firefighter who said uh, the sound of sirens uh, was triggered his PTSD. Like, that's your whole job, that, that's it. Uh, now, on the other side, if you have a normal, you know, warehouse or retail work, a normal job that you don't expect to see people getting killed or really significantly harmed, and it happens, uh, then those conditions could become uh, compensable. It's, those are very fact sensitive. It's gonna come down to the, uh, uh, the type of injury. Sorry, the circumstances. Uh, okay, Doreen asked the question, can you comment on an instance where an employee gets a flu spot, flu shot sponsored by but not required by the employer and then develops a claim for a, rotated, uh, a ruptured rotator cuff? Okay, so I'm trying to unpack this. And, and again, Doreen, I think this might be a phone call because I would love to laugh with you late into the night as we laugh about the hilarity of these kinds of claims. So you're telling me you've got a case where one of your employees uh, got a voluntary flu shot sponsored by the employer and then later claims that they developed somehow a rotated, a ruptured rotator cuff from that. I mean, obviously that's a denial. I don't even think twice. In recorded history, I don't think flu shots give you rotated rotator cuff ruptures or tears. That's obviously crazy, and they're trying to probably shoehorn in some kind of personal condition into workers' compensation. All right, and Sarah asked the question. This is the last one I'll answer because we're right at 12.30. What is the success rate for denials when someone claims injury during participation in a sponsored work event taking place either on or off premises? Okay, you're going to hate me, Sarah P., uh, because I'm going to tell you it's going to be very dependent on the facts of that instance. Uh, where the employer is uh, encouraging, requiring, you know, letting everyone know, hey, it's a voluntary event, but I really expect to see you there, you're not going to be successful in ultimately defending that case on a lack of compensability. It uh, doesn't mean you wouldn't raise the defense, and that, there might be a lot of reasons to raise these defenses, even if you don't think they're going to be ultimately successful. For strategic purposes, it really lines you up nicely for a Section 32 lump sum dismissal. All right. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for staying with me all the way to 1230 to answer all those questions. If you have more questions that I didn't answer, please feel free to email me. Remember, uh, next month, uh, we're going to be talking about the going and coming rules. So we're going to get to that circumstances with 
outside salespeople. We're going to talk about healthcare industry workers who are traveling. We're going to talk about attorneys who travel to meet their clients. We're going to be talking about uh, all of the off-premise injury scenarios uh, that we didn't get to talk about today. So please join me for that on Monday, June 17th. In the meantime, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Have a great week.